Okay, we'll just ignore the man up here fiddling with the wires. And uh, we're going to uh, do something a little different as we transition from uh, our study in Nehemiah, which we completed last week, and we get into our next study, which you will just have to wait to hear what that is. So um, I'm looking forward to it. And we might even take a couple weeks in between. But um, what I like to do when we finish one lengthy study before we start another one is uh, to sometimes just do a Q&A. Because people are often emailing me or calling me and asking questions about this and that. And I really enjoy these sessions because they make me dig. And so I invited you to share questions. And uh, I really got a flood of them near the end of the week. So uh, we might have to do this a second week. But I've also decided, if you've read the Thursday update this week, that I think we're going to include a question and answer in each of the updates from now on. And uh, that way we can tackle some of the ones that don't take quite as much explanation. All right? So this morning, I'm hoping to get through four of your questions. We'll see how we do. And uh, if we have to carry one over to next time, we'll do that. So here we go. Our first question comes from Charlotte Gunther, and this is her question. As I pray my morning and evening prayers, there is a recurring theme distinguishing sin, iniquity, and transgression. Can you shed some light on differentiating—my screen's jumping up and down, so I'll read off my paper. Uh, Shed some light on differentiating between the three. It seems to me a rather important issue. Is one more egregious than the other? Is other one more wicked and more sinful than the other? So uh, the answer is, to the last part, yes. Not all sin is sin. Like we often hear in churches, all sin is sin, and the wages of sin is death. So if you, you, you uh, deviate one hair from God's will, it's off with your head. Can I just comment on that, that verse, the wages of sin is death? Because we often think of that as like God sitting up there with a big mallet just waiting for somebody to get out of line so we just squish him. That was sin, you deserve to die. That's not what that verse means. Let me tell you why God hates sin. Are you ready? This is why God hates sin. Because it hurts us. It damages us. He doesn't hate sin because he doesn't want us having fun. God wants to maximize the fun and pleasure in our lives. But sin is not the way to do that. Sin will lure you with fun, but then as it traps you, the fun goes away. But the addiction remains. Your health is destroyed, your finances are destroyed, and your relationships are destroyed. God hates sin for the same reason you hate those things that hurt your children. I often have heard Robin say when one of our little kids got hurt by the corner of a table or they, uh, they tripped over something, uh, and she'll say, oh, I just hate the way the leg of that chair sticks out. Why does she hate it? Because our kid fell over it and got a bump. Why does she hate the corner of that table? Because our child bumped into it by accident and caused it pain. She doesn't hate it because there's something evil about it. She hates it because of the damage it does. That is why God hates sin. Are we clear on that? So, um, the wages of sin is death. Here's how to think about that. You're driving along, 
you come to a sign that says dangerous curve ahead 20 miles an hour. That's the law, 20 miles an hour. You say, oh, fooey on that, I'll be fine. You fly through that curve at 80 miles per hour, go off the cliff and die. You just experienced how the wages of the sin of disobeying that sign was death. Sin is deadly. It's not that God's looking to kill you because you sin. The sin itself will kill you. You understand? So quit thinking of God as this judge who's looking for a chance to squash us, to catch us doing something wrong. He warns us about sin. He says, don't do it because it's deadly to do those things. They're harmful to you, and I want you alive and well. So, the passage that Charlotte is referring to is one we read this morning. Lead us not into sin or transgression or iniquity. What is the difference between these three? And hopefully when the screen, should I unplug and replug this in? Okay, I'll try that. And see if the magic happens. Not yet. All right. People who are watching this live stream and think we're something fancy and and all that, we're we're a fly-by-night operation. So we are, there we go. And is anything going to happen? Nothing yet. Okay, well, I'll just have to be very descriptive in my language then. Um, sin, iniquity, transgression. You find these three terms often in Scripture. So here are the, the words, the Hebrew words that lie behind these three English words. Sin is the word chatat. Chatat, it means error. And I wish translators would just use the term error whenever the word chatat, or in Greek, hamartia, appears. Means a mistake, means an error. Means you're aiming at the target and you miss. Because sin in Hebrew means to miss the mark. Uh, Torah, from that we get the word yara, which means to hit the mark. Yara, Torah comes from the word yara, which means to hit the mark. So when you miss the mark, that's called error, called sin. Here's an example of sin. Just a pure sense of how it's used in Scripture. And it's one you've heard me share before, I'm sure. Uh, let's say you're driving to a friend's house. You've never been there before, and they give you the address and some directions. So you're driving along, and you accidentally miss their street. That would be chatat. You meant to turn the right street, you missed it, you went to the wrong street. You haven't broken any laws. But you just go up and go around the block and you come in and you get there. But there was a miss. For all sin comes short of the glory of God. We, we mess up. But then the next word, the next word is the word avon. Avon means guilt. This means you are driving to your friend's house and you say, oh, that's his street. And you turn right on it then realize you're going the wrong way on a one-way road. Now you've not only made an error, but you've broken the law. And if there's a policeman there, you're going to get a ticket. There's going to be a, a real consequence this time. 
Now, just missing the street like with Khatat, there might be a consequence as well. You might be late for the party. You might uh, get yourself trapped in some traffic. You might uh, find that the road you had to go on is much more difficult. You scrape up the car on something. But you didn't break any laws. But with Avon, you've broken a law. Now, with Khatat and Avon, which we be call sin and iniquity in the scriptures... Uh, in ancient times, if you committed one of these against the word, then you would bring an offering. You'd bring a sacrifice to correct that because you were not aware that you did what you did. It was a, a mistake. You're, it just it was a mistake. But the third one, transgression, is the word pesha. Pesha. This is very serious. There is no sacrifice for this one. Pesha is rebellious sin. It's willful sin. You know what's right, but you do what's wrong anyway. This is like driving to your friend's house, and you know they live on a one-way street, but you don't care. You turn the wrong way and fooey on the traffic laws. I don't care what the traffic laws are. That's Pesha. There's no sacrifice for that. Except for one, which isn't really a sacrifice. And if you've been with us on Yom Kippur, you're aware of this. In Leviticus 16, which is the Yom Kippur chapter, it tells us a shocking thing. It would be absolutely shocking to a Jew who would read this for the first time. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat. This is what was often called the scapegoat, the goat to Azazel. And confess over it all the iniquities. That would be all of the avon, all the guilty sins of the sons of Israel, all their transgressions, these are the pesha, all the willful rebellious sins, in regard to all their chatat, all their sins and errors. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities, all their chatat. You have to understand all pesha, all rebellious sins are sin. But not all errors are rebellious. There is definitely a degree of error and of, and of uh, and sinfulness, wickedness as you go through these. And we kind of all know this in our hearts anyway, don't we? Because we know that some things... Um, aren't as bad as others. Just like some commandments aren't as weighty as others. Yeshua refers to keeping the weightier parts of the Torah. There's some things that are just more important than others. Not murdering is probably a more important commandment to keep than not tithing the mint and the cumin. Right? That's the example he used. And he says, you know, you tithe the mint and the cumin and do this little stuff but you ignore the weightier parts of the Torah without keeping the first undone. So there are parts of the Torah that are weightier, and there are some sins that are weightier. So we need to keep that in mind, that God recognizes this, because it's not very gracious to think just all sin is sin, all error is, is repugnant in his, his sight and is worthy of death. That is not how God is. There are capital sins, and there are others that's like, uh, slap on the wrist for that one. 
The same way you raise your children, God's even more gracious and more wise in the way he raises his. So yes, there are some sins that are more egregious than others. Make sense? Okay. Question number two. This one comes from Chuck Castor. I'm not going to let him ask any more questions. These are too hard. He says, can you please explain how Jude chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and you can turn there in your Bible since it's not going to show up on the screen, at least not yet, connects to Zechariah 3, 2. These few verses and the connection are confusing. For example, how it speaks of Michael presuming not to bring against him a blasphemous accusation. All right, let me explain the question before I dodge an answer. And Jude, Jude's only uh, one chapter long, very short little book, but a very, it's a heavy, it's a tough book. And uh, Jude, by the way, was one of Yeshua's brothers. James, who wrote the book of James, was a brother, and Jude is another brother of Yeshua. So we have two books by Yeshua's brothers. And this is what it says in Jude 1. And I'm going to start instead of with verse 9, I'm going to start with verse 8. And uh, you have to understand that when Jude wrote this, he was writing it against uh, really Gnosticism and some of the really, truly wicked teachings going on by truly wicked men. And this was a screed against those, those wicked people and their teaching. So we'll look at this little snapshot from Jude. Verse 8, yet in the same way these men, these wicked men he's writing about, also by dreaming defile the flesh. They reject authority and revile majesties. If you have the word angelic there, it's not in the Greek. The word angelic is not there, but it's implied because whenever it refers to the majesties, it's referring to angelic beings. So these men, through their dreaming, they're either having dreams or visions or whatever, uh, just imaginations, and out of that, they create theology and doctrine and teaching. And then, so he gives this example then. He says, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, Adonai rebuke you. Now that's what the question's about. What's going on here? There's nothing in the scriptures other than this verse about Michael and Satan having an argument about the body of Moses. You can look back in the Torah. It's not there. But he's taking this example and saying, Michael the archangel, even he didn't put his finger in Satan's face and chew him out. Instead, he says, may Adonai rebuke you. I'm not in a place of authority to do it, but Adonai is. I'm going to let him do the rebuking, the correcting, and the convicting. All those are are definitions for this word for railing judgment. But look at verse 10 now. Jude continues, says, but these men... Rail uses the exact same Greek word. They rail against the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. But these things, they are by these things, they are destroyed. He's saying these men that Jude's writing about are so wicked 
They rail against angels. They rail against authorities on earth. They rail against this. They rail against me, against everything. It says, but even Michael would not rail against the devil himself. Michael had more respect for Satan than these men have for God and for God's people. That is the weight of what he's saying, okay? But still, I know this question is stuck in your head like a splinter. What's this argument about Michael and Satan arguing over the body of Moses? Where did they get that? They get that from an ancient writing, probably from maybe even before Yeshua was born. We don't know how far back it goes. That's called the Testament of Moses. It was a very ancient writing. And concerning it, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is there's one copy of it in existence that we know of. The bad news is the last bit that talks about Michael and Satan arguing over Moses' body this thing's been damaged and that part's gone. Because what would happen since papyrus and parchment were so expensive, sometimes monks would uh, find an old scroll or something, ah, that's, that's Jewish, we don't really need that, and they would scrape the ink off and then use that part for a shopping list or something. And that's what they did with the testimony of Moses. So how do we know this one existing copy that, has the end scraped off, how do we know it talks about Michael and Satan arguing? Because a 5th century commentator quotes it. He had access to a complete copy. And he quotes bits. He refers to it. And he says something to the effect, I've written out, but you don't need to hear it. Uh, He says something to the effect that just as the testimony of Moses says, and Michael argued with Satan... And it just makes that little clip, that little reference to the testimony of Moses. But it's the part that's been removed. Maybe someday they'll find another extant copy and we'll have the end of it. But to sum this all up, Jude is referring to a writing that was well known in his day. And he takes this bit about how Michael would not even chew out Satan himself And yet these wicked men of his day, they chew out all kinds of things they have no right to. But we have some clues and we have some hints as to what this argument was Michael and Satan had. So there are three passages of Scripture that give us clues. This is not an answer to Chuck's question. And it's not going to be a satisfying answer to the question that now all of us have. Thank you, Chuck, very much. (laughs) We don't have an answer, but we have some clues we can work with to try to formulate possibly what was really going on. Okay? And this is one of these puzzles. We'll just continue to puzzle over it. Maybe someday we'll have the full answer. The first passage of Scripture that I want to give you is uh, going to be Deuteronomy 34, verse 7. Deuteronomy 34, 7. This describes Moses' death. This is what it says. It says, although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. 
that phrase vigor abated is a, a very loose translation. In Hebrew, it says his moisture had not dried up. Now, Rashi, who lived back in the, I believe, the 1100s, still to this day considered the greatest commentator on the Torah. This is what he wrote, and there are others who have written the same thing. What it's saying is that when it says his eye did not dim, it means that even after he died, his eyes were clear and sharp. And when it says his moisture did not leave him or did not dry up, Rashi says what that means is there was no effect of rotting on him, nor did the appearance of his face change. In other words, Moses' body did not decay after he died. That's what Rashi says. Take it or leave it. It's up to you. But the next passage that I want you to consider is Matthew 7, verse 3. Actually, I think that should be Matthew 17. No, it should be Matthew 17. Sorry about that. Matthew 17, verse 3. And this is where Yeshua goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He takes with him Peter and James and John. And while they're up there on the Mount, it tells us in verse 3 that Elijah and Moses appeared to Yeshua. And you know the story. Peter says, oh, this is so great. This is awesome. Let's make three sukkahs. Let's make three huts. One for Yeshua, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We can just stay up here. And God had other plans. Now, here's, here's the clue. Elijah, where is he buried? Where is he buried? It's a trick question. Where, where is he buried? Anybody? He didn't, he didn't die. He was taken in the fiery chariot to heaven, right? So some people said, well, maybe Moses, we don't know where he's buried. Maybe he's not buried anymore. Some people suggest, some ancient writers suggest that he too was resurrected early and taken to heaven. He died, we know that. But his body's not to be found anywhere. No one knows where his his grave is. But they have these hints and suggest that even Moses may have been the very first human being to be resurrected from the dead. And that's why Moses and Elijah appear with Yeshua on the Mount of Transfiguration. And here's the strongest clue. Romans 5.14 Romans 5.14 says this. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until who? Moses. Death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offenses of Adam, who is a type of him, Yeshua, who is to come. Why does it say death reigned from Adam to Moses? Because no one during that period of time had been resurrected. From Adam to Moses, when you died, you stayed dead. But Paul himself may be suggesting this ancient idea that Moses rose from the dead. And God's beginning to show us that death is being defeated. Now, these are clues. 
Don't hear me saying this is the way it happened. I don't know. But I enjoy the clues and the breadcrumbs that are left for us that may possibly be leading us to the correct conclusion, but I'm not sure. But that is the... um, that is the thinking of many of the ancients and some people today. I don't know. So there's one question that remains a question. I don't have an answer for it. But now you can be puzzled like I'm puzzled. Now, in the question, uh, Chuck asked about Jude 1, 9 to 10, which we read, and how it connects to Zechariah 3, 2. We did not read that. But this is what Zechariah 3, 2 says. Adonai said to Satan... Adonai rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Adonai has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So these are the only two places where it states, may Adonai rebuke you, may the Lord rebuke you. What's puzzling about this is that when you read the context, we find that I forget if it's Michael or Gabriel. You have your Bibles there. There's a, Michael and Gabriel, or, or Gabriel, were standing next to the high priest. And also standing by the next high priest was the devil, was Satan. And it's a similar sort of thing. They're arguing over someone. So it says, is it Gabriel or Michael? Does this give the name there? I'm sorry, I, I didn't. Anybody looking at Zechariah 3? Just the angel of the Lord. Okay. The angel of the Lord. And, um, and then it says, Adonai rebuke you. Adonai said to Satan, Adonai rebuke you. How come the angel of the Lord's not saying anything? Well, the angel of the Lord's the one who said this. Because when the angel of the Lord speaks, it's Adonai who's speaking. It's like if I'm on my phone and Robin says, who are you talking to? I don't say I'm talking to the phone. Even though the person I'm talking to a person, but the person's not there. The person could be thousands of miles away. So on the one hand, I'm talking to the person. On the other hand, I'm talking to a piece of plastic I'm holding in my hand. The angel of the Lord is like, and any angel's like the loudspeaker. But the voice coming through, the signal coming through, is someone else. It's not the speaker speaking. It's someone speaking through the speaker. So when you have the angel of the Lord, God is speaking through the speaker, through the messenger. That's what the word angel means anyway. Okay? So there's another example where, again, this angel speaks and says, may Adonai rebuke you. I don't have the authority. But may Adonai do that. It's up to him. I was tempted to get into a whole study about what rebuking means, but we'll save that for another teaching. It would just take up too much time. But there's a lot to learn about what it means to rebuke. And we are commanded to rebuke, but we need to understand what that means and when to do it and how to do it and to make sure the proper authority is established before it's done. But that's a subject for another time. Maybe if someone sends in a question about that, we'll answer it. So I'm going to pause here. We've gone through two questions. Uh, Do you have questions or you need some clarity or anything? So just give a moment for someone to, to ask a question about the questions or the answers. Anything at all? Yes, Brandon. And I, can we get a microphone to Brandon? I, that's good, but do it quickly in the microphone. Okay. 
I love the way people try to get out of talking into the microphones, but uh, I'll, I'll catch grief for people listening online. Okay, there you go, Brandon. Could you go over what rebuking is? <laughs> Take that mic away, microphone away from him, Brian. <laughs> I, okay, we'll do that. We'll add that to the list to get to that another time. Yeah, I, it's worth talking about, but uh, I'm just not prepared to talk about it today. All right, any other comments or questions? I deserve, I, I should have known when you had your hand up. Don't call on this guy. Okay, we'll move on. Question number three. This comes from Rosella Groves. Great question. It says, after Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree, their eyes were opened. When you compare that to how the apostolic writings depict a person cleansed from sin as having been blind and then given sight, you would think Adam and Eve's eyes would have been closed instead of opened. You get, understand the question? What's that about? What were their eyes open to exactly? Well, here's the, here's the passage, so you can follow along in your Bibles. It's in Genesis 3. We'll read verses 5 through 7. Genesis 3, verses 5 through 7. Okay, now this is Satan talking, and he says to Eve, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, or clever is a better translation, She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her. People often ask, well, where was Adam? He was with her, it says right there. And he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, just like Satan said they would. They were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. See, the part that Satan left out, his words for the most part were true, but the part he left out is is that, yeah, you'll be like God knowing good and evil, but you will not be like God because you stole from him. You committed an avon, actually a pesha, a rebellious sin. So yeah, you get one quality God has. You can now perceive good and evil. But you lost your godliness to do that. You see? And, um, but what does it mean about their eyes being opened? When we hear the scriptures, we read the scriptures about someone's eyes being opened, all the early references of this is not someone who could not see at all and now they can see. It has to do with people who can see, but they don't see everything. Let me give you early examples. Uh, The book of Numbers, or actually Genesis again. In in Genesis, we read the stories actually from this week's Torah portion. uh, When Hagar runs away from uh, her mistress, Sarah, because Sarah's jealous about the, uh, you know, Hagar becoming a mother. She goes away into the wilderness. She's just ready to die. And, uh, and then the angel of God appears to her. 
And then it says in verse 19, Genesis 21, 19, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. Now, Hagar could see before this happened. And the well of water was there before this happened. But here it says God opened her eyes and she saw what was there. Most of the instances where God opens eyes is not where you went from not seeing anything to seeing everything, but from seeing a lot, not seeing all. Every one of us here needs our eyes opened because there are realities in our lives and realities around us that we don't see yet. Some see them better than others. But just because you have 20-20 vision doesn't mean you still don't need your eyes opened. Let's take this example. Uh, In 2 Kings 6.17, I love this story. A whole army has been sent to get Elisha. Not Elijah, this is Elijah's disciple, Elisha. And they sent a whole army. So here's Elisha in his little house. He has a servant there. And uh, the servant looks out and sees the army arrayed right there, on, like in the movies. You know, the, the bad guys come up onto the, the ridge and you're completely surrounded. But Elisha, he doesn't even, he, he shows no indication of, of concern. But the servant, he's going nuts about this. And it says that there, 2 Kings 6.17, Then Elisha prayed and said, Adonai, I pray, Open his eyes that he may see. Now, the servant could see. And he could see the army arrayed against them. But there's something else there he couldn't see. And it says, And Adonai opened the servant's eyes, opened his eyes, and saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So there was something there all along that Elisha was aware of, but the servant wasn't. And the servant's eyes were already open to see the enemy, but his eyes had not been open to see God's defenses. So around up there is the enemy, but around Elisha, I picture them facing outwards, are the chariots of fire, these angelic warriors. There's things that we don't see that often are most harmful to us. And we need to pray, God, open my eyes to see the things I'm missing, the things I need to see. Uh, another example, one more, Numbers twenty-two thirty-one. 31. Hired to, uh, to go and curse Israel. And finally, God gives him permission to go. So he's on, on his way, and his donkey... Uh, first time uh, the donkey wants to run off in the field and Balaam beats the donkey, gets it back on the track. And then the donkey goes between the two walls and the donkey runs Balaam's leg into the wall. I can imagine your ankle scraping along the stone there. So Balaam beats the donkey some more. Then finally the donkey just, just goes down on all fours. And Balaam starts beating the donkey again. And it says there in Numbers 22, 31, yes, 31, then Adonai opened the eyes of Balaam. Now, Balaam could already see. 
He could see the donkey. He could see the wall. He could see the people he's going with. He could see everything around him. But God opened his eyes to see one thing he was missing. And he saw the angel of Adonai standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. When Balaam saw that, he bowed all the way to the ground. He caught up to his donkey. The donkey was bowing. Now Balaam is bowing. So, again, opening eyes doesn't mean you don't see anything and then you see everything. It means you see, but you're missing things. And until God opens your eyes to see those things, there's a blindness in you. So, Adam and Eve, they steal from God. The first sin was theft. And as a result of that, every single sin a person commits is some form of theft. Every single sin. You cannot come up with a sin that is not a form of theft. Taking what does not belong to you. No wonder Yeshua was crucified between two thieves. The only question is, which kind of thief are you? One that repents or one that doesn't? And so they stole from God. As a result, they broke you could say they broke a covenant with him. They gave them everything. He said, just don't eat of that tree. Now, if God had given them of the fruit later on, he said, very good, you haven't eaten of that tree, but today, today, I'm going to give you of that fruit. Guess what would have happened? Their eyes would have been opened. They would have perceived good and evil. But they wouldn't have died from it. There had been no damage caused to them from it because there was no theft involved. God wants us to know good and evil. We need to know the difference between the two. But we need to receive it from him as a free gift. We need to go to his word so he can teach us what is right and what is wrong. But what Adam and Eve did, they wanted this knowledge of good and evil. But they lost the power to do what was right and to resist evil. Up until then... Every pleasure they enjoyed was in perfect harmony with God's will. But when they saw good and evil from now their fallen state, pleasure became very attractive and difficult to resist. And doing God's will was not so attractive. And their idea of what was good became very twisted. And that's why Humanity is in the mess it's in. You've heard me say before, and I still hold to it. Nobody ever does anything unless somehow in their heart they can justify the action and convince themselves it's good to do. I don't care if you're just a thug on the streets mugging people, or you're Hitler, or Saddam Hussein, or any other criminal or sinner or anybody. There's not one wrong thing you've ever done you didn't justify in your heart thinking, well, there's a good reason for this. Even the person who goes into total anarchy, you know why they do? Because they think the world deserves it and the world needs woken up to what a mess it is. And they're right. The world needs woken up to what a mess it is. Just that's the wrong way to go about it. Hitler had very high hopes, good hopes for his people. 
He wanted them healthy and strong. He wanted the economy to be great. He wanted everybody to be happy. He wanted utopia on earth. Wonderful. I want the same things. But going to war and destroying the Jewish people is not the right way to go about that. You understand? But every criminal, ma- I don't know if there are any such things as criminal masterminds. I find most criminals are pretty stupid. If they were smart, they wouldn't be criminals. But uh, most of the tyrants in history, every single one of them, thought that what they were doing was good. But they were so dead wrong. So the only way to really know good and evil and to use them in the right way is to know God first. You see? To know God first, to be yielded to God first. And Adam and Eve broke that submission to God to gain something that wasn't time for them to have. So their eyes are open. Now to them, every choice had a good and an evil to it. But their ability to perceive those choices and to choose was broken. It was really broken. And as you see with our sons, Cain and Abel, and then on with their children and on down through history, you see people wanting to do good, but lacking the ability to know what is good, to really understand it from God's point of view. So many times, what God asks us to do, and all of his ways are perfect, All of them are perfect. They're all good. But sometimes God asks us to do something. It's like, "Mm, this is not a good idea. It's not a good idea. And the enemy asks us to do something that is dead wrong, and it seems like a great idea. This is why we need to submit our ways to God's ways. We have to submit our opinions to his. And we're not to trust in our own hearts. Don't trust in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. Lord, this seems like a good idea, is it? I say, "Mm, not so much. Lord, I've been asked to do such a thing. I really don't want to do that. He says, nope, that's what you do. We cannot lean on our own understanding. Our own understanding is like a paper wall. You lean on it, you fall through. God's ways sometimes just don't look that Wise, They don't look that logical. But uh, this is why we walk by faith. This is why when he says it, we do it. Think of the spies. They went and saw the land. Okay, beautiful, great place. But we can't conquer it. It can't happen. It's going to destroy our children. There's no way. Even though God said, I've given it to you. It's yours. All you have to do is go get it. God's will did not look like a good idea. So what happened? They suffered the consequences of their sin. The wages of their sin was death. And the kids they were so worried about, they just went right on the cross 40 years later and they conquered the land. So don't lean on your own understanding. Trust God's leading. Trust his word. And that way, we restore the damage done by Adam and Eve. You got it? Okay. All right. We're right on target. Are, are, there any, are you missing the screens? I am. I keep scrolling this thing up as if you could see this on the iPad, but we'll, we'll just keep on going. 
Question number four. And this is from Kim MacArthur. In Hebrews 9.27, so turn there please. Hebrews 9.27, it states that it is appointed unto man once to die. I would like your opinion. No, that's a dangerous thing. You should ask for the right answer, not my opinion. That, but anyways, I'll try to give you the best opinion or best answer. Uh, well, I would like your opinion. Do you think it says that we have an appointment with death? That when God created us, he created us to live for a certain number of days? Uh, what this comes from is basically a not-so-great translation. In this case, the King James, because, you know, it's appointed unto man wants to die. That's King James English. We all kind of grew up with that. But the word appoint there is, is not really the best translation. It's not that far off, but it's just, it just doesn't quite hit the bullseye. By the way, I, there's an analogy I'd like to share with you. Um, because sometimes I get into situations where people hold to an opinion because that's what their Bible says. Or their translation of the Bible says. And every translation is an approximation of what the Bible says. And some are better than others. Here's an analogy to give you an idea. Let's say there's a man you know who loves the Grand Canyon. Never been there, but he loves the Grand Canyon. He's read about it, and he's got this beautiful oil painting hanging over his mantle of the Grand Canyon. It's beautiful. And you come along and say, you know what? I'm going to the Grand Canyon next month. I have an extra plane ticket. Would you like to go with me? And his eyes light up. Yes, absolutely. I'd love to do that. And so a month later, you, you pick him up and you go to the airport. And he's got his painting with him. He takes his painting with him. You fly the, you know, to Arizona and you drive up to the Grand Canyon. You go through and you walk up and... There it is. There's no way to describe it. And he's got his painting with him. And he says, look at that. Look at those colors. And he looks at his painting and says, yeah, but my painting has different colors than what I see there. I, I think that's wrong out there. And then you say, and look right down there between those peaks. You see just a tiny bit of the Colorado River, just a little peak of it. And he looks at his painting and says, Mm, not my painting. I don't think that's right. I've been in more conversations than I can count where I show them what the Hebrew says. Show them what the Word of God says. And they look in their, eh, that's not what my painting says. The Bible must be wrong because my translation disagrees. That's sad. That's a handicap. I don't know how you overcome. Now, I have nothing against the guy's painting. And I'm not against translations. It's just some are better than others, but none of them compare to being there. And when you see what it actually says, fix the translation. Fix the painting. But don't throw out the reality to keep your illusion of it. Understand? So... Anyways, that analogy comes from something that's been bugging me lately, and I just thought I'd bug you with it too. But uh, Hebrews 9.27, it says, and this is the King James, 
And as it is appointed, apokemai is the Greek word, apokemai, unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. You know, the sad thing is, is most people memorize that verse, they don't memorize the one after it. And they think the weight of the message here is you're going to die, and you're going to get judged, and most likely you're going to eternal hell for a conscious torment for the rest of eternity. (laughs) Right? Isn't that kind of how it's interpreted? So, here it is from a very literal English translation, but I'm going to add the next verse with it. And inasmuch as it is reserved to men, that's Apokemai again, reserved to men to be dying once, yet after this a judging, thus Messiah also being offered once for the bearing of the sins of many, will be seen a second time by those awaiting him, apart from sin, for salvation through faith. Ah, we got a menorah here. In the first verse, it talks about men. The other verse is talking about Messiah. And it says men, they're reserved. There's a death reserved for them. And it's once. You're to die once. But Yeshua, he was offered once. Now, the word offered has a dual meaning. We think of it as an offering, like a sacrifice, it can also be an offering as a gift. The same word is used for both. So you can see the word offering. It could be someone offering a, a great gift to someone or offering a sacrifice to God. I mean, think about it. They're both the same. So he was offered once. And then it goes on to say, for the bearing of the sins of many. Now, in Hebraic thought, the word many means many, and it can also mean all. We're not going to get into that here. If you have all the marbles in the world, do you have many? Yeah, you sure do. In English, we think of many as being less than all. But in Hebraic thought, I can show you several places where many and all are synonymous. I'm not even saying that's here, but just keep that in mind. We'll be seen a second time. In other words, he was offered and he died, but we see him again. He comes back to life. And he'll be seen by those awaiting him, apart from sin, for salvation, for rescue through faith. So what it's saying is, yeah, guys, you're all going to die. But guess what? Yeshua died too. But his death wasn't because of sin. It was a gift. And just as there is a judgment awaiting you, Yeshua is going to come back. He's your advocate. He's your trial lawyer. And he's going to cover that. He's going to remove those sins. So the judgment against you is going to be a good one. You understand? That second part, that second verse is very important to keep with the first verse. But it still doesn't answer uh, Kim's question. Are we appointed? When we're born, does God say, okay, here's your birthday. Let's see. I think August 4th, 2035, that's the day you die. Last night, Lance told a great joke. Kid says, my, my uncle, I think it's the uncle, my uncle knew exactly what year and what date and what time of day he was going to die. And the other kid says, well, how do you know that? The judge told him. So. Yeah, it wasn't funny last night either, but I thought... <laughs> Anyways, 
Did Lance, I should have had you tell the joke. It was better. <laughs> I want us to look at a few examples of where that word that's translated appointed are found in the scriptures. So I'll give you three examples. Luke 19.20, another came saying, Master, here's your mina, you know, your talent that you gave me. I kept put away. Up came I, same word. I kept put away in a handkerchief. And I, in other words, I was preserving it and to give it back to you. Colossians 1.5, because of the hope laid up, apokemai, there it is again, laid up for you in heaven. There's a hope reserved for you. You could say appointed, but it's reserved, it's protected, it's being kept, of which you previously uh, heard in the word of truth, the gospel. One more, 2 Timothy 4.8. In the future there is, apokemai, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That goes very much with our verse in Hebrews 9.28. So to be laid up, something preserved. When you read that in that way, you go back to Hebrews 9.27. It's as if the Lord's saying, guess what? There's a death day laid up for you, a homecoming. I'm going to suggest something to you. A lot of times believers, and I've asked the same question, why is it a righteous person, a godly man, a godly woman, when it comes time for them to die, they go through such suffering? Cancer or some other illness, a broken body, and they go through pain, they go through suffering, and it's like, oh, Lord, just take them. And finally, their soul leaves their body. Why the suffering? I have an idea about that. If death was not generally preceded by pain and suffering, every righteous person would be in a hurry to get there. The pain and suffering before death is God's way of tapping the brakes as I know you can't wait to come home. Just wait. Just wait. Because nobody's anxious to go through the pain and suffering that precedes death. Nobody wants that. But I think God in his grace precedes our death with that. So we don't fix on it too much waiting, thinking, oh, I just want to leave. It's like Paul you know, it's like, I want to go home. Yeah, you know, I got to stay here a while longer. You understand? So I want you to think differently about whatever pain and suffering may precede your own death. And, uh, and it's God's way of telling you, I still need you here for a while. Don't get in too big a hurry to come home to me. I'm just as impatient to have you here. But there's work for you to do. We have all of eternity to spend together. In the meantime, you keep living your life according to my will. Do it right. Now I'll be waiting for you. Because I have laid up for you a day of death when you walk through the door and you forget all the pain. It's all gone. Does that make sense? Uh, Somehow that resonates with me. I just think that's maybe the way it is. I don't know. I'm not teaching that as sound theology, but it's a, it's a picture I have in my mind. 
And it's like, okay, I'm no big hurry to, to go through some fatal illness or whatever, so I'll just stay here. Thank you very much, Father. If you give me a long life, I'm not going to complain. So, um, but God is so good. God is so good. So hopefully, those four questions got somewhat of an answer, and I hope it was a, a bit satisfying. But any of you, a comment, question, clarification? Let's get a microphone up to Deborah. There we go. All right. (laughs) Mine goes back to when you're talking at Two Kings in regard to eyes being open and closed. Is it a spiritual situation? Because when you taught on that, I write little snippets of what you say in my Bible. Without misquoting you, you said one has to be humble to see God. Is that the same thing? Do you know what I'm saying? Um, Yes. The question is uh, eyes open and closed and how we talk about how one has to be humble to see God. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, I think sometimes we have to put our position, ourselves in a position where we want to have our eyes open to things. We want to understand. Um, you know, sometimes people don't want to taste a new food. Oh, I've never had that. I don't want that. It's, it's like, um, well, taste and see. What comes first, the seeing or the tasting? Jonathan talks about when he ate the honey, his eyes were brightened. And sometimes we have to have the courage to taste something to in, and put ourselves in a position where we taste it and then we can see. So a person who humbles themselves or putting themselves in a position to see God more clearly. I got an email uh, this past week. Um, it was a question about faith and trust. Now, faith believes God runs the world. It's the big picture thing. God runs the world, period. But trust means he cares about little old me. He really loves me. He really is doing, orchestrating everything in my life that's best for me. That's trust. The one is Amuna, which begins with Allah, first letter of the alphabet. The other one is Bittakon, which begins with Bait, the second letter of the alphabet. Aleph, Bait. They spell together father. So my father runs the world, that's faith, but he cares specifically about me, that's trust. And I shared with the lady, I said, when to have faith, you have to have this big picture of who God is. You have to see his bigness. To have trust, you have to grasp his smallness. That there's no crack in the universe so small you can't find God there. We wanted to go to a mountaintop and have an experience with God. And going to the mountains, as we did a few weeks ago, it's inspiring. But sometimes to see God close up, I have to get on my knees. Sometimes he's only that tall. You have to get down small to really see him face to face. So don't ever forget those two things. And, uh, yeah, we put ourselves in positions to see. I remember when we lived in England. There was this long stretch between two towns. I'd driven it many times. It's just fields, just fields. It was boring. And one day I was going to a teacher's conference and there was another teacher going with me who grew up in the area. As we drove down this road, he starts talking. He's, he says, you aware what happened in these fields here? I said, no. And he started describing to me a battle that took place back in the Middle Ages with the suits of armor and all of that. 
And there's this great battle that took place in these fields, right on each side of where the car was driving. And as he described it and pointed where things happened, I could almost hear the swords and the shields and the armor clanking together. My eyes were opened. And what before was only just a farm, now it is like this heightened awareness of what had happened there. So all the time, we should be having our eyes, getting our eyes open more and more and more to things that we don't see right now. Make sense? Okay. David, let's get a microphone to David there. Thanks, Bill. <clears throat> so just building on what Debbie and, and you were just saying there, um, I wonder if we can think about it like this. A baby is often born with its eyes closed. Yes. And very shortly thereafter, as eyes are open, just being able to distinguish between good and evil, you're just an infant. It's like the beginning of creation is the separation of light and dark. That's just the beginning. If you look at God's plan, you see what they were missing as infants, you know, just with their eyes open. What they were missing was the specificity of Torah. He has to give the Torah to show us the kind of life in all of its details that we need to live to reflect the goodness. We have to stumble with that. We have to, we have to try on the Torah, and we have to... Right. He has to kind of pick us up, and we stumble again, and we realize we need something more. We need the Torah written on our hearts. Yes. And so they have to go through this whole process. They're just at the beginning where their eyes are being opened to good and evil, and, you know, they have to... They have to go through this process of realizing, you know, what the Torah life, what what the good life looks like in its details, and they have to stumble with that. They have to have it written on their heart, and then they have to live that out. And that's they're missing most of it, right? Yeah, well put. Yeah, thank you, David. Yeah, you're you're talking. It's for a picture of my mind. You know, uh, Adam and Eve started in the garden, but because of sin, they were evicted, and the whole purpose of that eviction is so that over human history we can make our way back to where we started. God took Adam, split him in half, took half of him away. But all that, all that was for is a form of brides to put them back together. But somehow the separation of being brought back together is better than never leaving at all. And uh, God in his wisdom understood what they were going to do and he said yes to it let them sin, evicted them. And here we are, hopefully at the tail end of this story. And uh, soon, maybe in our lifetimes, the world returns to the garden. The garden returns to us. I don't know. Sometimes it's got to happen. But it comes full circle. And uh, that is the great story. We're part of it. We're blessed. We're blessed to be human beings. Okay, well, with that said, I think we'll close in prayer. And once we finish, we'll ask that the camera be turned off and the live streaming come to an end. And then I have something to share with you. Our Father and our King, Lord, what glory it is to call you those two things. You are a wonderful, gracious, loving, compassionate Father who never slumbers, never sleeps. And you love us so much, more than we could ever begin to appreciate. And you are our king. You're a wise, benevolent king. You protect us. You go to war for us. You give us good laws so that we can have a kingdom that is a kingdom of peace. Lord, thank you for that. 
Not only that, as our Father, we're children of the King. We're royalty. What do we even do with that, Lord? The only thing left to us is to live like it. To live like subjects of your kingdom and children of you, our Heavenly Father. To behave more like our elder brother, Yeshua. To live more like the example he has set for us. Lord, help us to be the people you want us to be. So we will be lights in this dark, dark world. Help us to stand when others fall. Help us to be light when others, uh, their flame is blown out. And Lord, help us to continue to move forward when the entire culture is moving in the opposite direction. Lord, may we stand and bring you glory and bring you praise. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen.